This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Stephen D. Smith is the Warren Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of San Diego. Since earning his law degree from Yale University, Professor Smith has taught at numerous institutions, including the law schools of Notre Dame University and the University of Virginia. Prior to that, he served as a law clerk for three years on the prestigious United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. He's a sought-after legal authority, especially on issues of religious freedom. His most recent book, Pagans and Christians in the City, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac, makes an important argument about the clash of worldviews playing out now in the public square. That book is the topic of our conversation today. Mr. Stephen Smith, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I have looked at your work over the course of the last several years, and uh, I've read your books as they have come out. It's a remarkable production by any by any measure, uh, and uh, and your books generally published by major university publishers. Uh, so I want to turn to the content of the books, but let me just ask you as kind of a, a, a background question: uh, How how do you approach writing your books, such as your newest book, which is going to be the main topic of our conversation? Uh, pagans and Christians in the city. What 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 is your process of writing? <laughs> well, I'll answer that. Maybe on I'll try to answer that on a couple of levels. Yeah. Um, one is um, I actually never planned to be a law professor or, or a lawyer, for that matter. And um, I ended up through some you know interesting circumstances in this field, which has worked out pretty well for me. But I've always been more interested, to tell you the truth, in like religious and philosophical type questions than in strictly legal questions. Yeah. You know, I, I just don't work up the interest to write a book or even a major law review article on a purely legal question. So from the beginning of my career, I've always sort of looked for places in which the law interacts with religion or philosophy, or sometimes to be honest, some way in which I can explore some religious or philosophical question that I'm interested in, in a way that I can sort of put it in a legal guise so it might be publishable in a legal right. source. So uh, I usually get interested in some subject and I try to find some legal application for it. Um, more mechanically, I, you know, I think people do this differently. I tend to research and write at the same time. You know, I, right. I'm not someone who does all the research first and then writes up the results. I kind of have done some reading, some research. I start writing something. I do more reading as I go along. Uh, you know, the reading shapes the writing, and the writing shapes the reading. So. Yeah, actually, in Pagans and Christians in the City, uh, you engage with uh, a book that came out, a uh, major book, uh, while you're writing the book, and you engage with it, but point out that uh, you, you weren't able to do as much with it as if you had it had been written before you began the book. You might be referring to uh, Tony Cronman's book, yes. uh, Confessions of a Born Again Pagan. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. yeah, I had seen I had heard, seen little notices indicating he was working on something on that subject, but I and I even at one point emailed him and said, "I understand you're working on a book on paganism," and he. Uh, who is a really nice cooperative guy, by yeah. the way, I think, but he didn't, uh, maybe because uh, I didn't realize this, but his book is like 1,200 pages long or it's something. massive. He didn't send it to me. Yeah. He just said, it'll be out, you know, yeah. and I think it came out maybe in 2017 when I had all, pretty much finished this one, you know. You know, it takes a while with an academic book 
right. between when you finish it and when it actually sees the light. So all I could do was add a couple of references yeah. to to Cronman's book and. Well, you know, speaking of your first uh, kind of meta picture of how you write, uh, you're on good ground there uh, because uh, even the the formation of the medieval university, there are basically three professions, medicine, law, and theology. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were because they were the three most pressing issues of public consequence uh, in the medieval world and, and, of course, built around the, the universitas, the idea of the unity of truth uh, actually in Christ right. with theology, mm-hmm. the queen of the sciences. But... Uh, if you just take the two most famous of the magisterial reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, both of them were intended for the law, but ended up in theology. So, right, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. There's a sense in which you're um, on you're on very good ground. Yeah. With me, in a sense, it went the other way from Martin Luther. You know, yeah. I would have preferred to go to grad school in philosophy or something of that sort, and ended up in law, but, but still found a way to bring them together. I think. Yeah, but interestingly, both of uh, both Calvin and uh, Luther, of course, had. Uh, fathers who wanted them to go into the law because they wanted uh, the money that would come with right. the uh, the legal profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've been in the teaching of law now for uh, for a long time. Um, you know, in, in your your latest book, Pagans and Christians in the City, the subtitle "Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac," uh, you really expand on the arguments you've been making for years. And I have a small library of your books: uh, the Disenchantment of Secular Discourse and. Uh, the rise and decline of American religious freedom, uh, but uh, and and actually you have about four books on religious freedom issues prior to these that I brought. But uh, in this latest one, you really kind of update your argument and you place it in the context of a different cultural moment. You've been you you were hinting at all of this in your previous books, but something has happened in the culture that occasioned uh, pagans and Christians in the city. Yes. Well, if you're interested to know what immediately caused that, I yes. can actually tell you in this case. So, so I, I had not really studied much Roman history as an undergraduate or before. I started reading a little, I'd been interested in Christian history for some time, and I'd started reading a little Roman history several years earlier because, like many people, I start wondering about parallels between some of the things that happened right. in the Roman Republic and later the Roman Empire and things that are happening today. But I hadn't done much with that. Um, Then in 2015, you'll probably recall Indiana passed a Religious Freedom Restoration Act and basically all hell broke loose. And and, um, and I was asked by a sort of a religious freedom blog to write a little essay on that. And as it happened, I had been reading the T.S. Eliot book that I start this book with. And so I just, you're always looking for a little different angle rather than just say the same thing that everybody says. So I worked the T.S. Eliot um, book in for a paragraph. And as it happened, um, Stanley Fish likes to visit at the University of San Diego and he was out at San Mm -hmm. Diego and he's always a fun person to talk with. And he read my little blog entry and he said, well, it was pretty interesting. And the thing that made it interesting was the T.S. Eliot, um, the T.S. Eliot material. And it just occurred to me, it would be interesting to expand that, and it would give me an opportunity to read a lot of things that I'd like to read anyway, right. and so forth. So I didn't know what I mean, of the different things I start. Some of them go someplace, and a lot of them don't. But um, I started that one, and I just started reading a lot of Roman and early Christian history for a while. And so that part of the book, of course, is... Um, probably half of the book that now is sort of Roman right. history, which isn't my specialty, but um, I, I found it to be quite, I, I hope, illuminating. It was for me, at least. Well, I think it will be for any reader. And uh, I think particularly uh, for those who think they have some idea 
you know, in the Western tradition, we have kind of an inheritance of interpretation on Rome. And unfortunately, uh, at the head of uh, the most influential stream is someone like Edward Gibbon, uh, his decline right. and fall of the Roman Empire. And he, he basically, by my view, gets almost everything wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But that has become. But he writes very well. <laughs> well, right, right. I mean, I, I think of I think so. of uh, Winston Churchill, by the way. Uh, you know, writing his mother during the First World War, asking her to send him Gibbon. By the way, to make your point, and yeah. his, his leather in gilt, of course, uh, edition of of Gibbon came, and mm-hmm. uh, later in life, uh, you know, Churchill having won, by the way, the Nobel Prize in Literature, he uh, he actually credited Gibbon. Uh, Gibbon's oh. prose with helping him to find his voice in writing. So, no, there, there's no doubt his argument would have been uh, probably uh, submerged, but for the eloquence of his yeah. prose. And it does obviously have a kind of majestic sweep to it. You know? Sure, so, sure. But it does, as I say, uh, as you, kind of as you said, I mean, it reflects the um, Enlightenment take on things. I right. think, you know, that was standard in the among Enlightenment thinkers right. in the 18th century, the kind of anti-Christianity, you know, right. that sort of right. thing, uh, which I think in many quarters today, especially in the academy where I work, mm-hmm. is just axiomatic. I mean, right. people who haven't right. necessarily looked into it much, but they just take that as established truth. So before we turn to issues of law, let's talk about what interested you, because frankly, uh, it bo- both of these fascinate me. I have... Uh, I have several editions of uh, Gibbon, including uh, one that came out the year of its publication. Um, and uh, it, and it, it's interesting. I have an ongoing conversation with Gibbon. And then you mentioned T.S. Eliot. Most people know him by his poetry. Uh, I actually find much of his poetry incredibly theologically revealing. Uh, oh, yeah. But it's his prose that I think draws me even more. And you draw attention to his essay, as does uh, uh uh, Robbie P. George, Robert P. George at Princeton, in his uh, uh, very eloquent forward to your book, uh, it's his uh, essay uh, on a Christian society uh, that that really you know has uh, with its distinction between paganism and Christianity and and Eliot's prescient uh, observation that paganism is back and and big, mm-hmm. and uh, then with uh, with Gibbon, the two things I think he got wrong, which are his two main points. Uh, were that uh, that paganism was uh, this uh, uh, productive, tolerant, uh, yeah. uh, you know, life-affirming worldview that gave Rome strength, whereas the second problem, the second issue is he held that Christianity eventually uh, became intolerant, inflexible, uh, took uh, the uh, uh, joy de vivre uh, out of uh, out of Roman life and led to the Roman Empire's collapse. I think in, on both counts, he's just absolutely wrong. Right. So, I mean, Gibbon sort of famously said that the Roman Empire fell because of the forces of barbarism and Christianity. Um, and he does obviously give a really negative depiction of Christianity and Judaism even more so. He doesn't say that much about Judaism, but you know, right. very negative depiction right. of Judaism, I think. Um but I suggest in one of the chapters that both Roman pagans and Christians thought that there should be some mutually acceptable way of living together, right. uh, fully respectful of each other. Uh, Christians like Tertullian certainly say that, you know, we right. we support the Senate, we, we pray for the emperor, you know, why do you persecute us? Um, and Romans, I think that many, uh, let's say, sophisticated Romans would have thought that, you know, we have... Uh, polytheistic, uh, an embracing kind of religion. We can t- 
and embrace the deities of, you know, all kinds and so forth. And we could embrace your deities, they thought, I think, about Christianity, as long as you were willing to you know, have them just be, you know, you know, your God be one God among the various gods right. of the pantheon. What's so unacceptable about that? And I think on both sides, they sort of failed to understand how the terms um, that they thought should have been mutually acceptable really weren't. I mean, um, right. the, the Roman, the pagan terms, were, I mean, Christians like Lactantius would say, you know, they, they want us to uh, have our God acknowledged as one among many, but to do that would be to renounce our God. That is right. not the God, you know, that, right. that we worship. But on the, others, on the other side of things, it was sort of true also that Christians um, and the Christian gospel was subversive of the religious foundations sure. uh, of the Roman Empire, which were which were pagan. So to that extent, um, although yeah. Gibbon's sort of pejorative characterization of Christianity, something I don't share at all, I think he was right that Christianity was one thing that in a certain sense was subversive of the of the ancient Roman Empire. It's complicated because of course it also sort of held the empire together after Constantine for you know for a while. You could you could argue that it helped to revive and hold it together for a period of time. Well I certainly agree with you on those observations and uh if nothing else, uh, the statement that Jesus Christ is Lord relativized instantly uh, all of the uh, emperor worship, and that that of course uh, mm -hmm. that that is not a matter of Christian shame, but of Christian pride. Uh, right. But the uh, and and by the way, you have a very pithy way of saying things uh, in your uh, writing. So I think the reviewer booklet said uh, you know it's like the easiest to read academic book the the reviewer had ever read. But you you say things like. Uh, the Romans didn't so much believe in their gods as they had gods. And, uh, you know, that's just instantly clarifying and, and I think very true. Yeah, there I was. I, I might have been quoting Robert Wilkin or some other scholars yeah. who, who tried to make that point. Um, in some ways, I mean, and so that seems to be right. And, I, you know, I, I take that from uh, scholars of Roman history, uh, and I'm not one of those. But, but I do also try to say that I think belief is still, it can't be, excluded altogether. You know, you can't exactly have gods yes. unless you, in some sense, believe in them and so forth. So, so it's an interesting question. But it's not, question really it, it's not really theological. It's not really theological. And by the way, I appreciate you mentioning uh, two people about as different as one could imagine, uh, uh, Robert Wilkin and Stanley Fish. And uh, glad to say both of them have been my guests for thinking in public. So uh, really? oh, uh, again, okay. from, from two completely different worldviews. And, and here we yeah. are, uh, you know, mentioning them. Well, you know, that they're probably both very interesting to talk to then. Right? Oh, so. well, they are. And, and both of them incredibly provocative and open in conversation. Uh, right. And uh, uh, we're dependent upon Professor Wilkin for a lot of our understanding of recent uh, scholarship in the early church. And um, and oh, and, sure. and and then also of religious liberty. I mean, he's written this uh, monograph, which we discussed Recent last book on that. You know, on yeah. religious liberty, which is is, is really fascinating. But uh, the the uh, the issue of Lewis before we leave, uh, even when uh, when you begin the book, when he talks about this uh, kind of repaganization of society, which is I think exactly what we are witnessing now, uh, a repaganization of society. He makes a statement that the historical process. Uh, does not allow for a, a, a real reversal uh, when you're looking at the trajectory of civilization. Uh, he said, quote, it's uh, not what happens. Uh, that's a fairly ominous word, isn't it? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and when he said that, he said that also in a Cambridge lecture, which I haven't really researched this closely, but I can, in reading it, I wondered whether he might have been specifically responding to T.S. Eliot's lectures there a few years earlier. Well, um, 
he, he might have been, and, and uh, in a sense, disagreeing with with uh, Eliot. But um, I tend to think that depending on how you define it and how you look at it, there can be truth in both views. Um, right. One might well say, well, the kind of paganism that most people have in mind, and also the kind that uh, C.S. Lewis might have been thinking about, probably can't be revived. So even if you look at that, as to some degree, it's possible to do and say, there were a lot of virtues. There was a kind of joy in life in a certain way. You know, the, the paganism that would be revived would probably not be that sort of appealing kind of paganism. It might be something, you know, much less attractive. Right. Uh, Lewis was probably right to that extent. Yeah. Well, by the way, I uh, often get asked uh, by reporters or uh, respond to people in the public when they, they talk about their fear of the religious right. And I always tell them what you should really fear is the irreligious right. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it, there are different kinds of paganism. There are different kinds of, of Christian attitude, frankly. You know, it, but when it comes to the paganism that's being celebrated in our society right now, it's this idea of paganism as sexual liberation and uh, and what you will talk about later in, in your book as the imminent sacred. And I, I, I want to wait for just a moment because I think that's actually the very best okay. observation you make in, in the entire book, a crucial category for intelligent Christians trying to understand the, the, the world today. But uh, you know, one of the things you're quite candid about in your book, and, and necessarily so, is uh, the sexual practice of ancient Roman paganism, because um, it kind of represented a, uh, a form of institutionalized, uh, well, a sexual hierarchy. I mean, I, I mean so, so many things that you would think that the modern progressive left would say they don't actually believe in. It, it wasn't just uh, some kind of uh, Foucault uh, vision of polymorphous perversity. It was something quite different. <laughs> Well, it was hierarchical, certainly in the sense that it was um, the, the norms applicable to, to men were utterly different than the norms applicable to respectable women, you know, in that sense it was. Well, and, and the uh, free and the unfree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. And uh, that, that uh, section I relied quite a lot on a book, not very old, two or three, time flow, flies, yes. I'm not sure how long, I was going to say a couple years old, it might be a little more than that, by Kyle Harper, though, mm -hmm. you know, who... Uh, right. explains how the Roman sexual economy relied so heavily just on slaves and prostitutes, you know, right. as, you know, the, basically the material that would right. be used to satisfy the sexual desires um, of Roman males, essentially. Yeah. Well, what we're looking at uh, as your book unfolds is uh, the, the fact that you, you really trace how so many in the intellectual class in the English-speaking world, uh, were really attracted to a vision of paganism that they thought uh, might be a replacement for a declining Christianity from the, uh, say, the late 18th century onward. You uh, include a quote from William uh, Wordsworth uh, in which uh, he, he speaks uh, very much of this. And uh, speaking of uh, just a great God, he said, I'd rather be a pagan uh, suckled uh, in a creed outworn. Uh, mm -hmm. Using his poetic language, there really was this revivific revivification of uh, of paganism. Yeah, um, someone like Wordsworth, you know, in Romantics, are probably in part reacting to a world that, as they perceive, has become kind of commercialized and industrialized and disenchanted. Right. You know, to quote Weber, you know, and um, 
I look back sort of fondly and think that older world was, uh, you know, uh, more enchanted. It was, you know, full of poetry right. and romance and so forth. Um, and, you know, there are depictions of Christianity that are often unfair, but sometimes probably are realizations of the, some forms and, um, that, that do depict it as sort of joyless. Uh, you know, I actually think that's one thing that Christians in general probably need most to uh, mm. respond to and show, no, <laughs> that's not right. the nature of the faith. That's you right. know, it's, it's joyful, it's full of meaning and that kind of, at some point I, I kind of have the sense that our world, whether you, you, you know, different aspects that you look at, yeah. It's becoming so kind of plainly empty of meaning. There's some desperate search sure. for some sort of meaning, and most of the available sources of it are so shallow, right. you know, that at some point you hope maybe someone will, you know, people generally will wake up and say, you know, actually the only, <laughs> maybe, or at least one of the only viable sources yeah. of what we're looking for is over there, something we've been taught by most of our upbringing to think is, you know, was the thing that squashed it all. But right. no, you know, that's where it is. Uh, I'm actually working on an essay right now, by the way, uh, kind of demonstrating the decline even of the use of the word joy in a secular context. Uh, the uh, mm-hmm. you, Instead, you have words like uh, happiness or satisfaction. Uh, oh. The Christian category of joy uh, ha- has kind of disappeared. It's uh, it's just not used that much. And I, I think uh, I think we have a real opportunity as Christians to— yeah. There's more than just the satisfaction of consumer preferences. And so yes, forth, and, well, well and, and, you know, Christian joy is rooted in— the joy in this real life, in this real world, but without full satisfaction, except in the age of uh, uh, that is yeah. to come. Uh, that's a that 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 provides a completely different uh, worldview. When I was in uh, college, Professor Smith, uh, I was assigned to read Peter Gay's two volumes on the Enlightenment. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a as a young person uh, in the late 1970s, trying to understand the world, uh, Peter Gay helped me a lot, actually. Uh, by looking at the Enlightenment and casting it in a different uh, light than I had uh, been taught uh, previously. Uh, I actually went to a high school that taught philosophy. I don't know there are any more. But, uh, right. you know, the, but the, my philosophy teacher, the Enlightenment was the great unshackling of humanity. <laughs> and, uh, and Peter Gay, who, by the way, I think enthusiastically would have said the same thing if you gave him one sentence. But oh, nonetheless, yeah. uh, he... he one of the subtitles of his book was, uh, or one of the volumes was, the rise of modern paganism, mm-hmm. and uh, and it helped me theologically to see, as a young Christian trying to understand the world, that you know it reminds me of a, a statement made back in the 19th century that there are no new heresies. Uh, the heresies are all perennial; uh, they just keep uh-huh. showing up in different costume. Yeah. Um. But I think you're also right that when Peter Gay used that subtitle, yeah. he meant it to be an endorsement. I think you know, he's oh, yes. enthusiastic yes. about yeah. it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah he, but he, he did see the dark side. Uh, I mean, he, he clearly, for one thing, talking about joy, he helped me to see how unhappy many of these Enlightenment figures were. You know, for yeah. people who were supposedly uh-huh. newly liberated, they didn't seem very happy about it. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, but... Uh, you you deal with uh, with actually the subject of of, uh, of my ongoing concern, which is secularization, and uh, it's a contested category, but only only among an elite who want to argue over definitions. Uh, you know, the the most influential figure in my view uh, was uh, Peter Berger, uh, the, the late sociologist who who lived long enough to to revise his understanding of secularization, but he right. he basically said that. 
you know, we thought the world was going to secularize along the lines of, you know, Durkheim and the, the idea that, uh, right. you know, uh, modernity would just push religion out and, and you'd have this new secular age. And he bought into it until it, uh, it didn't go that way. As he said, well, it did go that way in Western Europe and the American university campus, but he said it didn't go right. that way anywhere else. It didn't go that way in the world generally. Right. But but then he said it's still, it, it, and so he he, he said the act, what actually happened was pluralization. Mm-hmm. Um in, in which Christianity just becomes one option among others. But by the very end of his life, he said, basically, that's just secularization in a different tune than we predicted. And, and yeah, I think um, he's largely right. It, it it was a different tune, but the average person today is inhabiting a different intellectual world in the West that than was possible even a half century ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so secularization didn't happen as, as you're saying, in the way that it was expected, people just quit going to church altogether. And re- I, I think Peter Berger in about 1968 has something where he says, by the 21st century, religious people will inhabit small cells, you know, right, and, they'll, right. they'll, and so forth. It didn't happen that way. But as you say, it's really complicated. I have a son, actually, who's in grad school in sociology at Penn State right now and sort of studying secularization. He was home two or three weeks ago and um, was talking about different people he's reading, there's still right. a whole lot of different takes on this. And some of them seem plausible to me, like, you know, a common view is the differentiation view. Right. It's not that people aren't religious anymore, but religion has been relegated in many contexts to the private sphere, Absolutely. excluded from a lot of government, excluded from Absolutely. universities, and so forth. So, so it's pretty complicated, and something like that has happened. Yeah, my, um, my argument is that the Western world in particular, and by its influence, much of the rest of the world is being secularized. It's just an uneven process with different yeah. secular variants. Yeah. But as a theologian, I'm going to define secularization in the declining binding authority of theism. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, that, that someone over here has got a crystal collection or someone over here has got a ritual consultant for his Fortune 500 corporation, yeah. that to me is evidence of the persistence of uh, the religious impulse by the Imago Dei. But it's, there's no binding authority of theism there. You're right. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. Um, the, the one other sort of dimension of this that I try to stress in the book, though, is that I think there's a religious dimension to a lot of what goes by, you know, let's say progressivism. Absolutely. It's not secularism of the kind, of the positivistic kind, you know, just right. fact value and we just deal with facts. Yeah. It's it's religiously infused. Oh, it's absolutely. Not, it's not theistic yeah. or transcendently infused. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can remember when I, in uh, high school studying physics, I came to understand the idea of a steady state. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and ever since then, as a theologian, I say, I have a steady state theory of morality and religion. There's never actually more or less. It's just differentially directed, <laughs> uh, you know. And uh, I, I, I'm trying to think of who it was uh, years ago. It may have been someone like Martin Marty who said, you know, we've gone from a society that has infinite rules about sex that now has infinite rules about diet. Uh, but moral judgment is, is, is present in both. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in your book, Pagans and Christians in the City. By the way, when you say in the city, you really mean in the society, and it's a it's it's a great way of even using the term that Augustine made. I think permanently meaningful for us. I was pretty much uh, trying to use it in that way, you know, with a reference right. to that. So yeah, and and uh, just for those who who may not know, Augustine, the uh, 
the the most influential of the church fathers, actually, I would argue, whose uh, great work written as Bishop of Hippo, as the Roman Empire was uh, w- was understood to be falling, was uh, the city of God, in which he described the city of man and the city of God, two different loves, but made very clear that God loves both cities. And, um, and thus we as Christians have a responsibility to the city of man, and even a proper love for the city of man, and in particular for the inhabitants thereof. And... Uh, and that takes me to the, the, the kind of the last half of your book, because you, you clearly care about these issues a very great deal. It's not just a dispassionate academic uh, impulse here. But uh, I think the most helpful uh, part of your book is where you make a very clear distinction between the, uh, the transcendent sacred and the imminent sacred. And, and honestly, Professor Smith, I have to tell you, if, uh, if, if that's all you wrote about in this book, it would have been, I think, uh, an incredibly worthy book. As a theologian, I want to say, I think that distinction applied to our world is uh, just incredibly clarifying. So talk about it for a bit. Okay, so um, the initial challenge, I think, in trying to defend, I, I mentioned already that I thought, well, could I write a book like project that would sort of try to defend T.S. Eliot's thesis yeah. and defend it against um, his suggestion uh, defended against, for example, criticisms like the one from C.S. Lewis that you referred to earlier. Right. Say, we, we just can't go back to paganism. Uh, the question is, is there some sense of paganism that we could say is ongoing and, you know, and it still right. is viable? And uh, this wasn't something I came up with on my own, but reading um, uh, people like the Egyptologist Jan Osman mm-hmm. and, um, and for that matter, Abraham Heschel, you know, the Jewish, right. uh, Jewish thinker and rabbi. Um, it did seem that this imminent transcendent distinction might be clarifying here. And so that is kind of the fundamental distinction that runs through the whole book, you know, uh, that there's transcendent religiosity and there's imminent religiosity. And that, of course, is a distinction that theologians have used, you know, for a long time and so forth. Absolutely. But it is a really elusive one, to tell you the truth, because um, in practice, it's not always easy to s- separate things clearly into the imminent and to the, and to the transcendent. And I try to suggest, and I suggest Augustine and others have actually made this point quite emphatically, even in our individual lives, mm-hmm. we sort of have tendencies both ways, you know, we're sort of pulled back and forth, I think. So, so in one way, it's an essential distinction, and in another, it's really difficult, it's really difficult to apply. Um, and some of the criticism of the book has really emphasized that as well. You know, it's tried to say this distinction doesn't work. You know, you can't really explain anything with it. Or, in fact, that I got it backwards. There was a review by a um, theology professor um, at USC, I think, David Albertson, who basically says it's just backwards. The pagan religion was transcendent in this orientation, and Christianity was imminent. And, and, and I didn't know this really at the time that, I was writing the book. I've done, you know, some reading since then. But I think, um, well, with movements that are described as modernism, you know, beginning, let's say, in the 19th century and moving into the 20th century, I think within Christian circles themselves, there's been, in some circles, a strong tendency to try to make Christianity an imminent religion rather than a transcendent religion. Well, let me speak as a theologian here. And so let me tell you, I, I think you get it basically quite right. And uh, so the uh, when we're talking about the terms transcendent and imminent, we're, we're talking properly about uh, theology proper, which is the doctrine of God. 
and uh, and and as we we speak theologically of the attributes of God, try to describe Him as He describes Himself, reveals Himself in Scripture. He is, first of all, transcendent. Uh, he's separate from His creation and and Lord over, sovereign over His right. creation and the entire cosmos. He is also imminent in that He is present in the world, uh, but He's mm-hmm. not present in the world bodily, as in paganism, or materially, uh, mm-hmm. but rather through the exercise of His sovereignty and then the, the, the presence of the Logos, uh, we come to know as the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, uh, and, and then the Holy Spirit. And, uh, but the, the movement of 19th century Protestant liberalism and uh, well into the 20th century, it stressed the imminence of God at the expense of his transcendence. So we're not right. going to talk about the ontological Trinity and, and uh, issues of formal theism. Instead, we're going to talk about what it means that God loves us. And so, you know, it gets to the the creed of the uh, Boston Unitarians, which is the brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God, and the neighborhood of Boston. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, by the time you get to the early 20th century, with uh, liberal forms of, uh, of post-millennialism, uh, the, uh, the charge coming from the Orthodox is that what the liberals are trying to do is to immanentize the eschaton. You know, they're 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 trying to redefine all of theology, all of Christian orthodoxy into basically secular terrestrial terms, and 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 so an overstress on the eminence of God is the opposite actually of uh, of the biblical framework. uh, You know, just to read the Psalms, and uh, so there's a very good theological basis for what you're saying here. But what I think is crucial to your argument, I'd like to have you spell it a bit more, is the fact that. uh, the distinction between transcendent sacred and imminent sacred is that our modern powers that be, the shapers of society, they're quite willing to embrace an imminent sacred, but they don't mm-hmm. want anything to do with the transcendent sacred because that transcendent sacred comes with sentences that take the structure of, for instance, thou shalt not. Yeah. Um, and I think this was true in, Rome in late antiquity, and it's true today. And the thing about about the transcendent sacred, which you know will be attractive to people in some ways, but really quite repelling in other ways, is that there's a standard against which things that happen in history and in this earth can be judged. So, So, in a certain sense. That's good, right? Because there's a standard, for example, of justice that we can apply and say, even if this type of thing has been common, slavery, let's say, even if it's been common throughout history. It's unjust. But on the other hand, what human beings often don't like is the idea that everything I do is in some sense subject to some standard of judgment, you know, that that can right. seem that can seem oppressive to some people. And I think there's been a lot of resistance uh, anciently and today. There just is, I think, resistance to, to that. Well, and you get uh, to a very relevant uh, abrasive tension points uh, on this in our society. But before before leaving that basic distinction, I think it's just really uh, helpful to understand that that kind of goes back to what we were talking about with uh, a more sophisticated understanding of secularization. The, 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 the sacred is there. It's just that for many people, it's basically a very worldly sacred. Uh, right. Not a, not a yeah. transcendent sacred that with... And I argue that that kind of secularism, secularism, it's probably actually much more common than the sort of official positivistic version that just denies right. that there's any sort of sacred. Right. But but you really press that in, and I think, a brilliant way when you say that uh, 
this, uh, the, the imminent sacred is very much in the driver's seat in this society. And, and, but that really does mean that the transcendent sacred appears to be uh, the enemy of human joy and goodness and liberation. So it's, it's not just that you have both imminent and transcendent claims. It's that uh, the, those who are committed to an entirely imminent uh, sacred and sacralizing, uh, yeah. they see someone like a either a Muslim or a or Orthodox Jewish person or a, or Orthodox Christianity as a threat to human liberation and flourishing. Oh, definitely, definitely. That's a that's a common perception. I think common mistake. I think, but you know, a common a common perception. But it explains the world you live in every day, which is a world of the law, which is having to adjudicate so many of these matters. Well, so if I could, you know, and probably no doubt oversimplified terms explain what it seems to me has happened. Yeah. And if I, and I should say, this may sound like I'm treating this as some sort of conspiracy or something, and I don't mean it that way. I think a lot of the times it's happened through well-intended people who just were doing what seemed like the right thing to do. But, um, but it would go something like this. In a religiously pluralistic world, it seemed that um, public norms and the Constitution couldn't depend upon religion because there's no common understanding of that. And so it needed to be secular and neutral. Those things needed to be secular and neutral instead. And that's certainly, those are the common themes in constitutional law in lots of areas. But what actually happens when we say that is that, um, again, I'm not intending any nefarious conscious designs implying on it and a part of anybody, but essentially is smuggled in a sort of an imminent sacred instead. You know, the transcendent sacred gets excluded. The imminent sacred gets uh, imported under the heading of secularism and religious neutrality and so forth. In a nutshell, I think that's basically what modern constitutional law has done in the area of freedom of religion, but in lots of areas, you know, the, the different areas that deal with uh, sexual norms and so forth. It's been a kind of an importation of, of an overall imminent uh, worldview right. and, and, and declared that that's basically our orthodoxy now. Well, it is our orthodoxy now. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, at more than one point, you make a statement like uh, every time the imminent and the transcendent sacred come into conflict in the law, basically the imminent sacred wins uh, or, or tends to win. In the law, that tends to be true and it tends to be true. And the reason, once again, though, is because the imminent sacred is clothed in the, <laughs> in the garb of secular neutrality and so forth, you right. know, which is supposed to be just, you know, kind of um, hospitable to everyone. But that's, you know, that's just sort of a false description, I think. Uh, you deal in your book with uh, Harvard law professor Mark Tushnet uh, mm -hmm. in his uh, rather infamous essay of several years ago yeah. on abandoning uh, defensive crouch, you know, liberalism. Um, yeah. And uh, he, he really was saying to orthodox believers, and, and those who would hold to uh, the transcendent sacred. Uh, look, we won, you lost. Uh, don't expect any compromise. Uh, I'm paraphrasing him here, but it's, it's you know, we won, you lost, uh, deal with it. Yeah. Well, he did. Yeah, I kind of wonder whether he regrets having <laughs> published that little essay or put it online, a little blog post that he wrote mm -hmm. called something like Abandoning Defensive Crouch. And right. it got a lot of attention and a lot of pushback and so forth. Um, and even from his own side of things, 
it might have been bad strategy for him to do, you know, to be quite that blunt about things because, right. um, you know, people, including me, have quoted him, you know, kind of As uh, against his own interest. Yeah. But um, I I should say I'm not wholly unsympathetic to Tushnet. For one thing, I kind of like him as, a, you know, I think he's a... I think he's an honest guy who's trying to understand things and, and, yeah. and a smart guy and so forth. Um, and the issue that he was talking about in that is a very real issue for, uh, for a lot of us, I think. Uh, it's kind of a question like this. If you, again, somewhat oversimplified, but think of there being two main like sides in the culture wars, kind of in the way James Davis and Hunter described it, something right. like that. I guess an ongoing question for, I think, many people and many Christians is, is there some possibility, should the hope be to come up with some modus vivendi in which we can all live together? Or is it going to be kind of as Elliot said, no, one side or the other is ultimately going to prevail. So Tushin is clearly on the progressive side of things. And he thought at that point, not implausibly, in fact, I think you've sort of been agreeing with him to some extent, that it looks like the progressive side has prevailed. And he was sort of declaring that in uh, maybe overly blunt terms and so forth. But um, it's not clear that he was wrong. (laughs) Right. And so I'm somewhat sympathetic to what he has to say. You know, he, of course, rejoices in that, and I don't. But... um, Still, he, I, I think he was kind of making an honest statement. We can um, appreciate him for doing that, I think. So. Well, I think we appreciate honesty wherever it's found, but it's a yeah. bracing statement, and it helps us to understand why. Uh, for instance, one of the things I, I, I face continually in public conversation is, uh, and, and private conversation. I'm glad to say I feel responsible to have private conversations, not just public conversations with people who are, in many ways, intellectual adversaries and on these cultural right. issues on, on the other side. And, uh, and so like you, I think it's important that we understand they think what they're doing is going to serve human flourishing and the human good. They think what we're doing is the opposite. So at least we, we have an honest disagreement here. But many of them simply can't understand that, that what they have to tell themselves and their side, so to speak, is why, you know, uh, 40 plus years 47 years after Roe v. Wade, abortion is still an issue and, and, and still a contested question. Why, uh, after uh, Obergefell in 2015, you know, same-sex marriages? In other words, if, if, if people won't just get with it and go along, they don't deserve to have a voice in the larger society and the negotiation of its matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are really hard questions, though, aren't they? I mean, even just strategically from a Christian standpoint, mm-hmm. you have, I think, people, I don't really know for sure what your view is on some of these things, but I think you have people from, oh, let's say Rusty Reno, you know, who suggests the possibility of some kind, uh, using Elliot, in fact, you know, the possibility of some kind of restoration of a kind of Christian society to Rod Dreher, um, who probably gets misrepresented in some ways, but at least the title of his book, Benedict Option, implies to a lot of people some sort of retreat to, you know, we've lost the, we've lost the war and we might as well try and find some enclave retreat. I think those are really hard questions. It is really hard to know what, uh, what the right um, course would be at this point. Well, given my own worldview and theological commitments, and, and by the way, as a confessional historic Protestant, and even more so as a Baptist of all things, a conversionist, uh-huh. Uh, I, I don't see any way that there's a return uh, to a reestablished uh, Christian consensus without there being an overwhelming return to uh, to Christ 
and to Christianity. In other words, I, I think what we've had is the residue of uh, that Christian conscience, but I don't think the Christian conscience can be re-imported without Christianity. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that the Rodriguez, and look, both of them are, are uh, people to whom I have very friendly relations and, and, and fertile cross-fertilization and thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rodriguez, uh, a friend, I would say. And, uh, but I just want to point out that you know the Benedict Option isn't what it might appear at first if you're doing interviews worldwide about it and uh, and you know being published by a major publisher uh, in that larger world and and by the way that's that's no hypocrisy on Rod's part because he's he's honest about what he's doing but there's some people who look at that and think it just means absolute withdrawal uh, the reality is that uh, Christians as a cognitive minority uh, in this in this world. Uh, while we're in a representative democracy, a constitutional republic, are going to be in a continual uh, struggle to uh, to figure out uh, where we have to what what we have to do to be faithful in a society that is increasingly pressing us to the margins, and once yeah. our and once our children. And I don't again, I don't mean that in a conspiratorial sense. Again, no. it, it's. It's not a conspiracy if they tell you what they're trying to do. I mean, right. they, they, they want to create a society that is, follows their vision of human flourishing, which we think is false. Well, here, if, if you don't mind, if I just... Please. So for me, one place where this sort of choice or issue shows up is, um, is well, let me put it this way. I occasionally do a little bit of work with uh, an organization, I'm sure you're familiar with it, called... Uh, uh, ADF Alliance Defending Freedom. I, I've written sort of like amicus briefs. Yeah, I've worked with them as well in cases, and I'm also a member, actually somewhat heterodox member, but uh, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints hmm. that uh, sort of orchestrated what's often called as like the fairness for all uh, right. situation in Utah. So ADF tends to be more like. Hardline on certain, you know, we, we don't want to compromise. If we compromise, we're just going to be losing right. out more and more. Whereas the other approach is like, no, we need to find some terms in which we can all just, you know, and I sort of see the attraction of both of those positions. And I just actually don't even know where to land on yeah. on those on those positions. So well, th- w- without belaboring it, since you 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 kind of raised the issue, I am uh, I'm a very unhappy about the fairness for all proposals uh, and uh, the so-called Utah compromise, because it makes a distinction between institutional religion, which would be protected, and uh, uh, Christians uh, or or religious believers uh, in the world who will then be abandoned. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I can't in conscience make that abandonment. And uh, I, and also I, I think that uh, that's where Mark Tushnet's quote's really helpful. It's kind of a bracing reality point. Uh, you know, the kind of people who will sign that kind of agreement uh, from the, say, LGBTQ side are the kind of people who will sign that kind of agreement. They're not necessarily the kind of people who are actually making the decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have your reservation and well, both of the kinds of reservations you've expressed, I think, mm-hmm. here. And I actually, one time a few years ago, I was giving a talk and uh, Utah, and people were asking me about this, and I said, you know, sometimes I think I have the impression that here in Utah, it's easy enough to say this because uh, on both sides of the issue, the people who are cooperating together, you know, are pretty much relatively moderate and in good faith and so forth, and so you think it will work pretty well, and maybe it will here, 
but I'm not sure it's going to work that well when you get other people involved, you know, right. in other places and so right. forth. And sometimes it, I, I've wondered whether it's a little naive to think that that could work. I mean, it's introduced, as you probably know, in Congress now. Right. But whether that could work out well but, at that but level, it doesn't, I'm not sure. I mean, just to make that point, politically, it doesn't stand a chance in the House under the current well, leadership. So it's... No, it, it won't be passed. Yeah. Although you may also have noticed, you know, commentary by Michael McConnell and others that suggest yeah. that you can interpret the Supreme Court's, some of the decisions over the last term is essentially the Supreme Court trying to bring about something like that right. compromise. If you put Bostock together with some uh, some decisions that seem to give pretty right. strong protection to religious freedom, you can read it as the court trying to bring about what Congress would never probably be able to pass. Right. But there again, whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. Well, and the other thing is something like this. this you know, yeah. I have lots of doubts about whether that will work out well. Yeah. But the other side is, so what should we be trying for? You know, is it just right. some kind of increasing polarization and uh, is some kind of civil war of some sort or other? You know, it, that's why I think this is a really hard question. Well, I think uh, the questions, like, questions like this are always answered over time. And so, you know, just uh, the Supreme, you're the legal scholar, but my, my, my point to make in response to what you said about the Supreme Court's adjudication on these issues is, yes, that's true. But uh, the Supreme Court's dealing with two things there. One of them is uh, the Constitution of the United States. The other is statutory law. And uh, if something passes like the Equality Act um, that uh, has already passed the House, uh, that would reshift the situation. The court will then have to deal with the law. So Congress could basically adjudicate this in a way that eliminates a lot of the uh, religious liberty protections that yeah, the court sure. has put in for place. Sure. Yeah. yeah. No, I didn't mean to be endorsing the Supreme Court decisions. And I yeah. think the Bostock decision was an atrocious decision. Agreed. I think, actually, but, and I've written some things or one thing, at least criticizing that already. But um, so. you uh, early in the book uh, raise uh, the, uh, the question of uh, Douglas Laycock, uh, who, uh, who, by the way, is, uh, is in this season of uh, thinking in public. Uh, in, in which he kind of asked the question, why is it that uh, those who are pressing, I'll just say from the left, uh, have to go to such an extreme that they will find the one cake baker in town uh, who yeah. won't bake the cake and and make uh, him or her uh, a national case? And uh, I have to say, by the time we get to the end of your book, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you really do kind of answer Laycock's question. Mm-hmm. But you don't take it as – it was not quite as satisfying a conclusion as I was looking for. So now I've got the author on the line, and I can say, so <laughs> let, let me let me ask you to answer Laycock's question. Why, why, why is it so that uh, that those who are pressing this moral revolution uh, can't even let one cake baker alone? Yeah, Um so, in fairness, to say two things, I mean, one, Doug's a really reasonable guy, I think, and has done tremendously good work in this area. Absolutely. And I think he is genuinely trying to find some middle ground that should be. Um, the other thing is that um, there are other people who are trying to do that, too. It's not that everybody is equally aggressive, of course. Right. But you're right that there are plenty of people who are aggressive in that way. And um, I guess my th- thought and I try to bring out a bit in the book is that just as in, uh, as I said a moment ago, in ancient Rome, you did have two fundamentally incompatible and there wasn't really any way to, to really reconcile them harmoniously. So there was ultimately going to be some sort of a 
conflict and when Elliot thought yeah. the same was true today. Right. People, some people, at least on both sides, also think that that's true today. And so, given that, they and people like, I mean, Mark Tushnet would have, as essay would have expressed this view, say, so one side's going to win, and we've got to sort of make that clear. So, we've well got to drive out with. of the public square yeah. the people who are holding to the other philosophies. Uh, yeah. I think not everybody thinks that, but there are a lot of people who do, I think. Um, so uh, just in closing, I, I, we're, we're about out of time here, but I, I just want to ask you, with, with that in, in mind, uh, what's the future of the free exercise clause? Uh, because you, you would think that there, you know, we, we, we have from the, the very ratification of the U.S. Constitution a guarantee that, uh, that we can't be silenced. But uh, what does that really mean these days? Um, well... At least uh, there are some indications, and this is maybe just a short-term forecast, that the Supreme Court right now is fairly strongly committed to the free exercise clause. And in a case they're going to um, hear this year, mm -hmm. the sort of Fulton against Philadelphia right. case, they've actually Foster put on Karen the agenda, mm -hmm. should Employment Division against Smith, the decision in 1990 that sort of reduced free exercise right. protection, should it be reconsidered? Right. I, I think there does seem to be a majority of justices who seem to be quite committed to free exercise, and I regard that as a good thing. However, I don't think it's a stable thing right. without some sort of cultural and legal foundation for that, right. which I don't believe we have at the moment. You know, So in that sense, the future of the free exercise clause to me is much more up in the air, right. and it'll depend on broader developments and not just sort of what lawyers and judges say about free exercise. So what writing project are you working on now? What, what should we be looking for? Well, I actually just uh, sort of finished a manuscript that's going to be published by Notre Dame Press of a book called, um, what's it called? Fiction's Lies and the Authority of Law or something. Mm -hmm. And it deals with a number of normal, uh, let's say, ordinary legal questions like constitutional interpretation and statutory interpretation and so forth. But it also tries to, it takes off from Hannah Arendt's provocative statement that authority has disappeared from the modern world. We no longer know what it is. And this amounts to the loss of the groundwork of the world. So I try to use these legal issues again to get into that. And it ends with a sort of an Augustinian conclusion, a little bit like uh, a theme that runs through the Pagans and Christians book. Absolutely. Professor Stephen D. Smith at the University of San Diego in California, you've been incredibly generous with your time. This is a, a down payment on a conversation. I look forward to having about your next book as soon as it comes out. I hope so. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been an honor. Thank you. God bless you, sir. Okay, you too. I really do believe that Pagans and Christians in the City is one of the most important books written in recent decades, uh, having to do with our cultural situation and, uh, and, and where religious believers stand, and I'm speaking here as an evangelical Christian, at the uh, beginning of the 21st century and now as we're working our way into it. The issues are only going to become more fervent. They're only going to become more urgent. And the necessity of Christian thinking is only going to become more important and primary in our lives. So with that as a responsibility, let me encourage you to read Pagans and Christians in the City. I enjoyed this conversation with Professor Stephen D. Smith, and I want to thank him again for joining with me and thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. 
For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mobler.